Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When you think of the future of clean energy, wind and solar might be the first things that come to mind. But when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, the need for alternative sources of power becomes clear. From enhanced geothermal to nuclear fusion, up-and-coming advancements may deliver a future of abundant clean energy. One of the most ambitious ideas is space-based solar, orbiting solar panels of a sort that can beam energy to the Earth from space. Is this a viable energy solution or just a sci-fi pipe dream? To find out more, I'm joined by Ali Hajibiri. Ali is the Brennan Professor of Electrical Engineering and Medical Engineering at the California Institute of Technology, as well as co-director of the Space-Based Solar Power Project at Caltech. Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Space-based solar, as I understand it, putting solar panels essentially in space seems like a beautiful, elegant solution. Why is it a good idea? What problem is it solving? Right. Great question. The primary problem that it solves is essentially being able to get around the day and night, the cycles of the weather and all those things, that the cloudy day and all those things, and having dispatchable power where you need, when you need, and as much as you need. So an advantage over ground-based solar. Uh, correct. And the other benefit of it is that essentially you can uh, have these systems in space for a long time and you can route it the way you want. You can actually distribute the power. You can break it up into smaller pieces and can say, I want to set right now, send 20% to New York, 30% to LA and, you know, 40% to, I don't know, Seattle. Right. That sounds simple. Uh, two, two questions pop in my mind. Um, with these panels, be sort of sometimes they would be in they would be in darkness they would be on the on the night side of the earth right so how would they work so so that's a good question depends on which orbit you put it in if you put them on um, geosynchronous orbit what happens is that or something near geosynchronous you are basically in the sun for most of the time except for 20 minutes on the equinoxes most of the times you're not eclipsed because you're so far away that the shadow of earth is so small. And because of the inclination of the earth, because it has an angle, what happens is that you only at the, you know, the two equinoxes for 20 minutes on each one of those. But as it's transferring power down, it doesn't have to be directly over the sort of collection station, right? It can be at an angle. Doesn't. No, that's the beauty of it. It can actually, like we, what it does, because it's a very large array, it redirects the energy. You can electronically steer it. It does not even a mechanical steering. So you can actually create a, a focal point of energy where you need, where your recovery energy of energy occurs. And you can move that very rapidly with the, on the scales of nanoseconds, extremely fast. You can move it from one place to another. And when you collect it on earth and you can see, or you can send the power anywhere, does that... Does that require brand new technology to distribute that power? Do we need superconducting, you know, transmission lines? Is that basically using current technology? 
Right. What it does on the ground, we have what we call so-called the rectennas, which is basically rectifying antennas. It's a fancy word for that. It is these, this another array of antennas that are very plain and very flat. I mean, if, uh, if it were not radio, I would have had demonstrations of these things to show you how, how they look. But these are like, think about thin sheets of material, like printed circuit boards that go in your computers and things of that sort that sit on the ground, they collect the energy and they convert it to a DC power, and then that's converted to AC. And then at that point, you can plug it into connect to your network, essentially to your distribution line, the same power distribution line that you use. You can even envision putting this next to photovoltaic solar powers that are out there or any other kind of power plant. It could be any kind of power plant. And you just connect to it and add and augment the power that you generate with these. So you can basically bolt this onto the existing power system? Yes. I mean, once you are on the ground station, once you get past the rectenna and the, the conversion to AC, then, then that's basically compatible with all the other AC network. Solar power is becoming cheaper, and the land area we would need to cover with solar panels to power the whole Earth is probably smaller than most people think. But traditional solar power relies on storage at night when the sun isn't shining. But what you're suggesting wouldn't be reliant on batteries, right? Exactly. So we would basically what we do, we, you, it allows you to, like I said, I mean, you can send the power where you need and at the time you need, and you can even break it up into different proportions. But what it, the other thing that it does is that since you have it 24 seven, pretty much, you don't need the storage, which is a big challenge. The other thing is that there are places that don't have the power infrastructure, you know, and a good analogy to this is the cell phones and, and versus landline, you know, 30 years ago, there were places in Africa that didn't have landline in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Today, there are the same places don't still have landline, but they have leapfrog to cell phones. So there's good cell phone coverage. So this way you can actually get to places that don't have power. You can think about Arctic Circle. You can think about a lot of places, remote islands, things of that sort that may not have power infrastructure. And this way you can enable it when you need to have the power over there. This is not a new idea. It's an idea from about 80 years ago that you're attempting to turn into reality today. I wonder if you could spend a minute or two talking about what you're doing exactly. You're absolutely right. It, it is an idea that I think the earliest rendition of that that I know is in a short story by Asimov, uh, as, as many ideas are. Uh, but, um, you know, the uh, what is different is that the technology didn't exist for doing these kind of things for space. There are several different things. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but it's also a very challenging idea in many different ways. One is that when you put things in space, things are expensive. Putting things in space, you pay dollars per grams. I mean, so that's extremely expensive for things that you put in orbit. So the, one of the key parts of making this happen is to make it lightweight. The other thing is that these array elements, these, these making it with large arrays, were not very practical up until the point where we are in the integrated circuits, the same chips, the same things that go into our computers and phones, the same technology is now what, what we are using to make these incredibly large arrays that are very lightweight because these are very small, lightweight. And then now on top of it, we are making them flexible because the way to deploy something that's of that magnitude is we have to roll it and then deploy it, unroll it. So this, you can think about this like a sheet. These are like sails that you open up in space. Now, this the technology to enable that, the integrated circuit, the packaging and all those things did not really exist up until recently. And that's why we came up with a new architecture for doing it that and allows us to do it. The original renditions of this idea, the, the thinking was that we have the solar panels, we aggregate all of the power, we have this giant dish antenna that points to earth and then sends it. And in that case, you would be pointing to one direction and you couldn't move it around because it was mechanical 
mechanically pointed. And if you could, if you wanted to reorient it, you had to mechanically reorient that antenna and point it in a different direction. We are doing it all electronically. So we have this very thin, very flat sheet that transmits the energy. And what it does, you can, because of the coherent addition of all these billions and billions and billions of sources, it's like an army of ant. So we've gone from the mindset of the old mindset was what I describe as a big elephant as opposed to army of ants. So and then that, that analogy, I mean, each one of them are capable of doing different things, but because of that swarm nature, you can actually make it very lightweight and spread out. Now, how old is the project that you, you're working at at Caltech? We've been working on this for close to eight years now, seven, eight years actively we've been working on it. The power transfer part of it, which is the part that I've been working on even before this project, which what led to this project has been going on for more than that, for like 10, 12 years, uh, wireless power transfer for both terrestrial as well as the um, you know, space-based applications. And the, and the power is transferred, it's converted from sunlight into, uh, is it lasers, microwaves? It's, micro, it's microwave, it's uh, radio, radio frequencies, essentially, microwaves, okay. and then you transmit it and then you recover that on the ground. So whenever I hear about any space project, I always think, well, was this possible before SpaceX? And as the reason we're talking about it because of that decline in launch costs and perhaps continuing decline in launch costs. Does your does your project depend on that, or is it just a fantastic enabler? Yeah. Okay. So it's one of the I would say four or five enablers that kind of converge to make this become closer to something that can actually be done. Um, definitely, the SpaceX is a catalyst in in that creating this. I guess lowering the barrier for space enterprises, right? Anything that you want to do, uh, non-governmental stuff and all those things, smaller projects, SpaceX and alike. I mean, there are other places like Blue Origin, things of that. So people are trying to do that. They are trying to um, level the playing field so, so that more entrepreneurs can get into it. Now it can be in the academia, in the industry, any, or anywhere else. And that plays a role. And again, there are like all these, all these other technologies and architectural changes that also enable us. So I would say that's definitely one of the four or five catalysts that had to come together to make this uh, happen. I've seen a video of you describing how there are these small wafers that add up into bigger panels, which are then arranged into a giant array. Each one would be a sort of power plant in space. How big would those be? That's a good way to think about it. That each each one of these power generator power plants, you can think about them as an order of a kilometer by kilometer, or like about a mile by a mile. So so that, that is like a square mile or square kilometer, something in that range. Depend depends on the orbit you choose and the size and the size of the ground station. There's a little bit of a trade off. You can make it larger in space, smaller on the ground, or smaller on, in in space and larger on the ground. So there's that trade off you can play with. But yeah, it's about a, let's say a square kilometer or square mile in space, each one of them. And how much power could that theoretically uh, generate uh, back, on, back on Earth? So, so somewhere between like several hundred megawatts to gigawatt, depending on the angles and things of that sort. So it's, it's, it's a substantial amount of power. I mean, it's not- How would that compare to uh, something like a nuclear reactor maybe? Well, I mean, they, you would be, it would be comparable and it can be even higher than that in some cases, depending. And the, the other interesting thing about this, if I should say, kind of comparing to these uh, other kind of generators, is that since this is a modular system, we have a lot large. This is actually a formation flying of satellites that are about like each one of the modules is about like 20 to 60 meters, depending on different 
designs for different orbits that are formation flying in close proximity to each other. And that means that if one of them fails, you can actually replace it without having to replace the whole thing. So it's very modular. You can actually be, have robustness because of that. Right. I mean, I recall, I think, was it, I think the Hubble Space Telescope, when they had to repair that, it was a pretty big deal. Yes. I mean, you're just making, and I'd hate to think like we'd have, it, it would be as involved with fixing each of these sorts of panels Correct. That's all we would be doing is, you know, is doing spacewalks. Exactly. No, that's, that's excellent. That's an excellent point because the way we've designed them, one of the key elements is the cost, cost structure of these modules, because it has to be economical at the end of the day, because we are using the same silicon technology that's used for all these electronics and all the other stuff, we're making it low cost. So the idea here is that that component, we just decommission it, let it burn in the atmosphere and just put, put a new one in there. We don't have to replace components. It's just like a new satellite that kind of puts in the orbit and the other ones just decommission. And the cost structure allows for that. Would you envision this as sort of a, just kind of one arrow, one arrow in the quiver? Do you view this as something where we could get substantially all our power from space? Are there just some places it works better? What are sort of, what's sort of the potential and limitations? Right. Uh, I think, well, like any other technology, if it's successful, it will be phased in in different stages, right? I mean, in different phases. So you can't really I mean, do it all at once. Um, now, as more and more of these stations are going to be put in space, then you can see how this will respond to the system. But my ex anticipation is that uh, it would definitely be filling in the, the, the gaps in the baseline. So for example, I mean, if you look at the load line that the power generate generations generation has today on the earth and it has changed because of the photovoltaic quite interestingly they have this uh, duck they call it duck curve because in the middle of the day there's like lowered the demand the way it changes in the early afternoon it goes up peaks and then comes back down and kind of looks like a duck so uh, but the, the interesting thing is that now so photovoltaics has kind of brought up the middle of the duck so they've brought up this like middle gap that they had and then now it's got it's gotten to a point that some at some points actually the power the price of power is negative during the day I mean, the, the bulk price of the power. And what this does, it allows us, the space solar one does, it allows you to fill in the gaps where you need it. So for example, you could have most of your power being transmitted to New York when, you know, uh, in the afternoon, but three hours later, you can shift that power to LA, for, for example. I keep thinking like, why is this a bad idea? Well, one thing people might say is, uh, there, we're already worried about too many, um, you know, Starlink satellites in orbit. These are much, much bigger. I mean, you would be able to see these from the Earth. Is that a, what do you make of that concern? So, so there are different aspects to this. I, is it mostly because of the, there are concerns about, for example, space junk and getting a crowd and all those things. So if they've got there's space junk concern, there's, there's also just these sort of uh, astronomical concerns. It'd be hard to do astronomies more sort of the aesthetic concerns. Right. Well, uh, yeah, the aesthetic st aspect I can't talk to. I mean, I guess the beauty is the eyes of the beholder. But, um, you know, uh, the astronomy aspects, again, there are obviously uh, going to be windows and there are going to be just like the times that these systems pass overhead. But just to think about things, space, the area that is out there at 36,000 kilometers, which is the geosync is the area of that area is actually 36 times larger than the area of the entire surface of the planet, just to see it. So to think about including that all of the water, all the oceans and everything, if you take that area, it's a much bigger sphere. So 
there's a lot more room, if, if anything, out there compared to other things that we make. So I'm not too concerned about that. There are also people who think about, yeah, is it going to cause interference and all those things? And those are the kind of things that we've learned how to deal with in, in radio systems. We have many different radio systems working concurrently and seamlessly, and we don't seem to have problems with that, like Wi-Fi and 5G and this and that, and your Bluetooth, and all of these things seem to be working work to, because, together. And the main reason is that we've learned how to do it in that respect. There's also another set of concerns, kind of like some people raise, it's a health concern. Is it going to you know, fry birds flying overhead, right? Actually, it's interesting because the answer is that the energy density that anything even in that beam spot will get is comparable to what you get from standing out in the sun, except for the fact that it's what we call non-ionizing radiation as opposed to sun, because it has UV and all those things that can actually change the molecules and the chemistry so they can cause cancer, UV does. But radio frequencies don't. They all, all they can do is generate heat. The benefit of this thing is that with that power level, you recover probably three close to three times, three to three and a half times more than what you recover from photovoltaics, and you can have it during the day or night. I was recently reading a, a big report from Citigroup about the space economy, and they went into some detail about space-based solar. That's the first time I can remember reading Wall Street research about this technology. At this point, though, is it still so early that you're not getting much private sector interest? No, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, I can tell you that there has been a tremendous amount of interest. I mean, especially recently over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot more. And partly I think because of the, it's because of the fact that the technology, I mean, in the past 10, 20 years ago, it was not really realistic because of the cost structure, the complexity of tech technologies and all those things. But now people are see, see, starting to see the pathway. So we've had a lot of interest from various places um, and it, it's kind of going, growing exponentially in a way uh, recently. So I'm, I'm anticipating to see a lot more of that investment. In fact, we've been approached by several investors in this regard too. But it will take time. It's not a short-term project. It's not an app that we can start today and like, you know, we'll have a, a first prototype working out, working in like a few weeks or a month. We've been working on it quite a while and it has been, it has to continue on. We in fact are going to have a launch um, uh, sometime soon to have a first demonstration of some of the key components of the technologies that we are launching, key technology demonstrators. The Chinese seem pretty interested in this technology. Yes, they are. They, they, and, and it's interesting. Uh, a lot of this thing has happened it, 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 in part because of these new technologies that have been developed at Caltech and at other places that made it possible. So people are taking another look at it. There was this old kind of like mindset about it and this new mindset that is re renewed interests uh, in it because of these things. Yeah, Chinese are interested. US, UK, United Kingdom um, is very interested in this. Uh, uh, um, there's uh, Japanese are very interested in this. There's a lot of other efforts in other places. India is actually even interested in it. So, so we've actually seen a lot of interest all over the world uh, in this area. Is there something you need government to do or maybe stop doing at this stage in the development of the technology? Right. In terms of investment, definitely. This is the kind of things that, you know, to, to get started, you need a big entity like government to put investment in it in terms of research and development, because it is not, like I said, it's not a, the barrier to entry to it's pretty large. 
pay the amount of initial investment. Of course, the return eventually is going to be large too. So that's important. Also, from a regulatory perspective, it, it's important for government in general about these technologies related to wireless power transfer, both terrestrial and space. I think the government needs to take be, be more um, proactive in terms of allowing it to flourish and not getting in the way. Uh, in different ways. There are, you know, everything that new that comes in, there needs to be, of course, you need to have a thoughtful discourse about it. But uh, if it gets to a point of it, become, it becoming too much of an impediment to innovation and progress, then that would not be a good thing. So I think that would be allowing these technologies to flourish in terms of spectral allocations, things of that sort, and uh, would be a good thing to continue to do. Are there sort of key sort of deal-breaking technological challenges that you still need to solve? Or even with the difficult problems, you can sort of see, again, sort of the path, how you solve this problem. Or is there something like, we need to solve this problem. I don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we need to. Right. There are, I mean, it is, uh, it is fair to say that not all the technical challenges have been solved, but the pathway has become more clear over the last several years in terms of at least how we go about solving them. It's sometimes the unknown unknowns that get you at the end of the day. But the thing is that we have, we have more of the things that we know that we need to figure out. And I think we have a clear pathway, but in general, I mean, making nobody has built a coherent structure of this magnitude anywhere not even on earth let alone in space so for example this army of ants that analogy that i used earlier if you take that you have an army of ants but you want the ants that are like a mile apart to be synchronized within about picoseconds like a few picoseconds and a picosecond is one trillionth of a second so the act, timing accuracy of that. So that kind of thing. And we have solutions. We are working on things. It's a combination of various advanced technologies that allows us to get, get this kind of timing synchronization. But those are the kind of challenges that we are trying to overcome and solve when you go to the scale. And it is something that we has emerged because we've solved the other problems. Now we're at the point to say, okay, well, now as we're scaling it up, how do we do these things? And we need to solve those problems. All right, best guess. How long until space-based solar arrives? Are we talking the 2030s, the 2040s? Uh, I, I would, uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm more on the optimistic side, I guess, just like I'm saying that I think probably by the end of the 2020s, I think you will have some demonstration. I mean, some power transfer demonstration. No, we are going to have short, soon, we are going to have some technology demonstrators when basically there would be some demonstration. But if you want to have substantial amount of power transferred, I would say probably before the end of this decade, I, I, would, I would say that will happen. Now, if what fraction of our power would be provided at that point? Probably not a whole lot of it, but then that takes another decade probably or two to get to that point, if, if this pathway turns out to be the right pathway to go. Ali, thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem, it was my pleasure. 